and the surgeon lost it. How dare you come into my OR and not know how to do this? From Spa Dameron Tenney, it's the Prosperous Doc Podcast. Real stories, real inspiration, real growth. A show for doctors who are ready to improve their overall wellness in every aspect of life. Now here's your host, Shane Tenney. Welcome to the Prosperous Doc Podcast, where we talk with your colleagues around the country to educate, inspire, and motivate you. And I can't think of a better time in history, or at least the history of this podcast, than in the midst of 2020, the year of the global pandemic and everything else going crazy, to be talking about professional, relational, emotional, and financial wellness. Today, we are joined by Dr. Gail Gazelle. Dr. Gazelle is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. She's a master certified coach through the International Coach Federation. Has coached over 500 physicians on mindfulness, resilience, growth. She teaches a resilience curriculum to medicine residents at the Brigham and Women's Hospital outside Boston. Dr. Gazelle's been published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Oprah's Magazine, the Journal of the American Association for Physician Leadership, and is a recently or a newly published author releasing Everyday Resilience, her book that came out last month. So Dr. Gazelle, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Shane. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start maybe by just laying a little foundation. You know, I've shared your pedigree here. Rewind a little bit. How did you move from clinical medicine into now coaching people in clinical medicine? Right. It's a great question. So I started my career as a hospice physician. I actually went to medical school because I was really interested in end-of-life care, and it wasn't actually a field back then. So I did my residency in internal medicine. Then I did a medical ethics fellowship thinking, oh, maybe that'll get me into the field of -of end-of-life care, which it did. I was actually asked to develop an end-of-life care, palliative care program for a large HMO in Boston where I was working. So that's what I did for most of my professional career. And now along the way, I, like many physicians, struggled with burnout. It was all too much, frankly, not just the time demands, but the guilt. I'd be home with my son and I'd feel guilty that I wasn't catching up on journal articles. I'd be at work and I'd feel guilty that I wasn't home with my family. And I had so many, you know, kind of interior tapes about my worth, about being an imposter, inner critical voices that really wore me down. I stumbled into coaching myself and found it life-changing. It really helped me work with kind of my inner workings a little bit, getting to know them more. And I felt a sense of almost leapfrogging forward with some of the things that had held me back. So I was inspired to become a coach. So I did my coach training in 2011. And with the sole purpose of helping colleagues, you know, across North America, cope with burnout and learn the skills that we just don't learn in our training that can help us run this marathon of a medical or even, you know, a dental career. It's interesting that it sounds like you were well into your career as a physician when the the symptoms of burnout began to kind of manifest in you. What helped you identify the symptoms and say, this is something that I really need help with, as opposed to just something that I need to stuff in a box and keep grinding it out? Well, I'll be honest, I did that kind of head down, grinding it out for a long time. And I think that's what we learn to do in healthcare is just put our needs last, take care of everybody else, kind of ignore some of these issues. 
And I guess it just wore me down so much, the fatigue from it, that sense of running on empty, that made me think, you know, I need some help here. And it's okay to ask for help. I don't have to go this alone. I had done a lot of work in mindfulness. I developed my own kind of meditation practice, then got training in mindfulness as well. And I think that also helped me have a greater awareness of what was going on for myself and a realization that I had a choice. I could stay locked into some of that burnout, or I could invest in myself, so to speak, and really get the tools that I needed to move forward and be the best I could be, both at work and at home. Now, you mentioned you felt like an imposter. There's a word for this, I think, imposter syndrome. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what imposter syndrome is. It's important to talk about because a lot of us well-functioning people who are well-respected actually walk around feeling like an imposter. So it's the belief that what we know is minuscule and what our peers know is massive and that it's only a matter of time until we're found out. And once we are, we will be the laughing stock of our institution. So it's this high-stakes inner belief that questions our own worth questions our own validity as a professional, as a physician, in my case, and for many physicians. We don't have really good data on the imposter syndrome, but my best guess is that well over 75% of physicians chronically walk around feeling like an imposter. And what is that based on? Well, it's based on the hundreds of physicians that I've coached. It's a rare one who doesn't feel like an imposter. The hundreds of residents that I've worked with at a major Harvard teaching hospital where you might think, wow, they're the cream of the crop. Why would they feel like an imposter? And yet they do. And we can talk a little bit more about why. And then I've been very fortunate to speak to physicians across the country. I do a lot of public speaking, keynotes, workshops, et cetera. And I often poll the audience, you know, if you'd be comfortable, just share if you feel like an imposter. And when we do that as a poll question, it's typically nine out of 10 audience members, nine out of 10 physicians who are hearing that talk, who fess up to the fact that they walk around with the sense that it's only a matter of time until they'll be found out. And the the cost of that is really high. What causes this to develop in the physician? And I'm curious, to your knowledge, is imposter syndrome unique just to medical and healthcare professionals, or does it show up in other areas of society as well? It definitely shows up in other areas of society. Michelle Obama has talked about feeling like an imposter. Many celebrities, I think it was Jodie Foster who said something like, when she won the Oscar, she thought, oh, they didn't mean me, they meant Meryl Streep. So there are all kinds of quotes from famous people about feeling like an imposter. So it's common in high-functioning professionals. I think the reason it's perhaps as much or more common in physicians has something to do with our training. Our training is about perfectionism, and we are taught, very sadly, that if we're not perfect, we're actually a failure. It's very kind of black and white. It's a fixed type of belief. You're this or you're that, as opposed to you have a lot of strengths. You may not be perfect, and that's okay. You bring a lot to the profession of medicine, and let's foster your strengths. Let's harness them to help you in areas where you're not as strong. The other thing in our medical training is lots and lots of comparisons. We're always being compared to some other physician. There's what's called the hierarchy. There's this idea that the neurosurgeon and the cardiac surgeon are, you know, the the tippy top and down at the bottom. It's ridiculous, but family docs, pediatricians, people are shamed sometimes for going into those specialties. It's really, it doesn't make any sense given the worth that all physicians bring 
to vulnerable patients. We need all of these specialties to function as a population. But those comparisons also set us up for these kind of false views of who we are. There's something that I've kind of claimed and called the cycle of perceived inadequacy. And let me just say what that is, that we were hyper-focused on things we perceive we didn't do well. I didn't sound very smart. I didn't give a good presentation, something like that. And then we compare ourselves to others, but what are we hyper-focused on them? We're hyper-focused on the things we perceive they did well. Oh, that one's so smart. That one, wow, so articulate. So we kind of create this false delta, this false kind of gap between where we perceive we are and where we perceive they are. It's an incredibly subjective process. You can hear that. I can hear your chuckle, you know, Shane. You can see it for what it is. And yet, Many of us get very caught up in it. I'll be honest. I've gotten caught up in it. And I work with a lot of clients who really feel this very heavy burden, this thing that they're carrying around like a big bag of rocks almost that contributes to being drained and being burnt out. I'm smiling because I think your description is so apt. My sister eloquently described the impact of that from social media by saying that we compare our Monday to everybody else's weekend. (laughs) Well, but I thought, yeah, that's exactly what happens. I'm comparing my everyday to somebody else's vacation or success and my failure to somebody else's win and victory and then feel unworth it, really. I was also thinking, Dr. Zell, I remember in a coaching environment that I was able to be in a number of years ago, similar to what you're describing, there was, they were talking about the difference between our role and how we perform and then that connection to our identity. And sometimes we unhealthily connect our performance to our identity. And when we make a mistake or when we fail, oh, well, now I didn't just fail, but I am a failure. And learning how to distinguish those, I think that's a little bit of what you're kind of describing here, yeah? It's very important to distinguish this and, frankly, to realize that the imposter syndrome is simply a thought process. It's all it is. It's a thought process. And Sometimes I think about our mind almost like a garden, Shane, that there's weeds and then there are things that we want to thrive, but we kind of water them equally. And sometimes we water the seeds that become weeds more than we water the healthy things that we really want to sustain and grow. So what I mean by that is we can begin to become more aware of when we're accusing ourselves of being an imposter. Really tune our awareness into that. And then we can decide, well, how much attention am I going to give that thought? I can water that thought. I can give it lots of water so it'll thrive. And I'll walk around with my head hung low, not being able to see my strengths and all the good that I do. Or I can pay attention and realize when that imposter belief kind of negative message comes out in my mind. And I I can work with it. I don't have to give it all that watering, all that attention. That's such a critical part of resilience, and it's a critical part of what I help people do as a coach, and I think that's what you're saying in the experience when you got coached as well. For sure. Now, is there, in your experience, is there a common denominator among people, among physicians and practitioners who are more prone to imposter syndrome, or is there a a subset of people by by specialty, as you point out, or gender or ethnicity or stage in practice where it manifests? It's so interesting. I have seen the imposter syndrome in medical students, 
residents, as I said, even at Harvard Medical School, people kind of call it the Harvard Olympics. Well, how can I compare to this person who has all of these credentials and accomplishments? And similarly, while we might think with the medical hierarchy that people who are kind of put at the bottom of that might feel like an imposter more, I think the problem is that everybody walks around feeling like an imposter when there's kind of this setup of that we're not equal. So, for example, I was coaching a cardiac surgeon, wonderful guy, very well respected, and he had such bad imposter syndrome. He just his his mindset was, you know, somehow I got here. Nobody found out what a fake I was, but it's only a matter of time now. And every time I go into the OR, Gail, I think my number is going to be called. And I've heard that from a lot of surgeons when they go into the OR, the sense like, okay, now that foot is going to drop and everybody is going to see that it was all a sham. You can imagine the burden of it. For sure. Yeah. Just that feeling of going to work and forming a noble service throughout the, maybe not perfectly, but noble work and yet feeling the weight of being a fake. Now, I know a lot of your work and talk is on overcoming imposter syndrome and clearing the noise in your head. So I'm going to ask you about that right after this break. I'm Will Coster, bringing you this episode's financial wellness tip. Have you ever been approached with a seemingly lucrative investment idea that you weren't so sure about? It's common for the lounge of a doctor or dentist's office to be the breeding ground of some pretty wacky investment ideas, from buying into a strip mall to investing in the latest technology startup. While there's nothing inherently wrong with dreaming of an early retirement or having alternative streams of income, there are certainly many factors to consider. And for every one success story you hear, there are usually 10 failed ventures that end up setting families back and erasing years of hard work. However, I'm here to say that sometimes there are legitimate opportunities to consider, such as maybe buying into a surgery center. Surgery center buy-ins can often be offered to physicians after about two to three years of practice. The main benefit from a physician standpoint would be the possibility of additional income. Surgery centers can also offer a huge benefit to your patients. However, with opportunity comes risk to evaluate. There's typically a delay in the return on investment because many surgery centers will not produce income for at least a few years after buying in. The bottom line here is consider discussing your investment strategy and buy-in opportunities with an experienced professional so they can help vet the wacky, long-shot ideas from the legitimate opportunities that are worth considering. For this episode's financial wellness tip, I'm Will Coster. All right, Dr. Gazelle, we were talking about imposter syndrome before the break, and I'm curious, what do you tell people who are struggling with this and just have a cloud in between their ears when they go to work every day? There's a few things. The first is realizing that everybody experiences this. We feel so isolated. And this voice of, you know, you're an imposter, you're not as good as others, leaves us feeling like it's just us. So very, very important that we can remind ourselves, this is not just me. 
for every person that I'm comparing myself to and believing that I come up short, that same person probably is comparing themselves to other people and hyper-focused on their perception of their inadequacy. So that's the first part, really reminding ourselves, this is universal. This is not just me. That alone decreases the burden. The second is getting to know our thought patterns. And that's why mindfulness is so important. You know, when people hear the word mindfulness, they think about monks on the mountaintop, sitting and meditating, you know, in an uncomfortable position for hours upon hours. Yeah, that's true. But for the masses and for you and I, it's really more this awareness, this getting to know what our mind is up to, because our minds are so productive, obviously. And yet they also take us down a lot of dark alleys, don't they? And we need to get to know that so that we can work with it, as I said, so we can decide which thoughts we pay attention to and which ones we don't. So mindfulness is another thing that is critically important. Just being aware, oh, there goes my mind again, telling me that I'm an imposter. Just when we can externalize it a little bit, as opposed to this is the truth, that also helps us work with it a little more. The other thing that's really important is when we have that thought that we're an imposter, to actually push ourselves to look for objective data. In other words, look for the data points. When I gave that talk last week and I thought that I was just a complete fake and didn't know anything about it, actually, some people asked some questions that really showed that they valued my expertise. And oh, that one, you know, really thanked me for how much I helped them in the talk. So kind of looking for that objective data. What about those patients that I help? Maybe I couldn't cure their COVID, but I did do a lot to alleviate their suffering. So it's, it's trying to apply the same objective lens that we apply as healthcare professionals. That's what we're in the business of doing is being objective, applying that same lens to our own mind, because we can really benefit from a little bit more objectivity with our own minds. Is working through these things the process that you call resilience in working with folks? Or what's the connection there between the imposter syndrome and resilience? Well, the imposter syndrome so erodes our resilience. And just to make it very specific, I'm coaching a lot of physicians, obviously, during the pandemic. And so many physicians have a heightened sense of being an imposter during the pandemic. So the examples are, I was coaching a family physician who was doing telehealth, wasn't in person with her patients. And when she was in person, you know, had to have her mask, her face shield, her gowns, et cetera. And she felt like a total imposter. I'm not a real doctor. I'm not even in the room with patients. I can't even put a hand over the shoulder to comfort somebody in need. I'm not a real doctor. That same week, I was coaching a couple of physicians on the front lines in New York City. And this was in April and May when numbers were really high. It was really unreal what was going on in New York. And a couple of them said to me, I'm a total fake. I can't help patients. Patients are dying. If I was a real doctor, I would have a cure. So you can see in that juxtaposition that anybody can be prey to this sense of being an imposter. And that gets to another very important way that we can help ourselves work with it, which is to intentionally look at our strengths and accomplishments. In other words, at the end of every day, go through, well, who did I help today? No, maybe I couldn't cure them. Maybe it was COVID or some other incurable disease. There are many incurable diseases that we see in the practice of medicine. 
Maybe I couldn't cure them, but I was able to help that fellow human being. So we actually push ourselves to actually do an inventory at the end of every day to balance this subjective view that we're not doing enough. And and then by definition, we're some sort of fake. You bring up just the experience in in April and May coaching physicians. How has the the pandemic and, and I might even just broaden it to say the overall stress of 2020, is that layering on an extra level of tension for physicians? Without a doubt, the pressures on the healthcare system are perfectly unreal. And healthcare was somewhat under-resourced even before COVID, sadly, you know, and a lot of the infrastructure of healthcare was breaking down. There were a lot of complexities. I don't think anybody really doubts that idea that, you know, we have a complex and somewhat broken healthcare system, even in this wonderful country. And with COVID, it's really taken an unbelievable toll, you know, on the financial structure of healthcare systems, perfectly unreal that they didn't have the same volume of cases. They had to invest so much in PPE and changes in the physical plant. They had to furlough people. You know, now there are not just physicians, obviously, but many healthcare employees who haven't just been furloughed, but have had their jobs terminated. So it's, it's unreal, the stresses on the system. And where I come in as a coach and as an author, as you said, my book, Everyday Resilience, a practical guide to build inner strength and weather life's challenges, is helping people have the tools so that they can ride the waves of difficulty. This is an incredibly difficult year. What if we have difficult years in the future? How do we manage that? What if we or a loved one is diagnosed with an illness that really changes our life? How do we manage that? That's where resilience comes in, because we all have resilience within us. That is my belief. And I talk about that a lot in my book, but we don't always know how to access it. And the imposter syndrome, to me, is an example of that. We don't learn how to access resilience against these kind of negative inner critical thoughts that we have about ourselves. We don't learn, certainly in medical school and residency, we don't learn how to work with our own mind to manage, right? To manage these inner critics that we all have kind of sitting on our shoulder waiting to pounce on us. And that erodes our resilience. But we can learn how to do that. Some of the examples that we've talked about today, we can learn how to do that. And that way we have a little more ballast, so to speak, to then help us weather the challenges that we face, whether they're COVID or an illness or a difficult teen, you know, pick your poison. Because we all face them. We all face difficulty in our path. Hopefully that difficulty is not massive, but we just don't know. We don't know what life is going to bring us, do we? In your career, have you seen a shift in the medical and healthcare community in being willing to put the vocabulary to the feelings? I guess I'm, I'm wondering if 20 years ago, people were feeling this and docs were struggling with this, but either not willing to admit it or not able to because there wasn't a vocabulary for it. Is that developing into a more healthy blend? And I know you teach a class to residents and those sorts of things. I think it's fair to say that there's much more openness. And that might be the silver lining of the burnout epidemic that now we talk about well-being. They're chief wellness officers at many healthcare institutions and elite medical schools. Now residents are free to come and, and get guidance if they're experiencing burnout. And that's so important because the issue of stigma is really mighty. 
so many physicians are afraid to seek help because, you know, what if I have a malpractice case and what if that's used against me? What if I need to go on an antidepressant? I can't do that because they'll get the pharmacy records and, you know, that could really put me in a bad place. You know, terrible stigma that nobody should have to experience. The coaching and the resilience framework is really a stigma-free. It's a, it's a strength-based. You have so much wisdom, strength, and expertise within you. And I want to help you harness that and use that to mount the challenges that you're facing. So it's a very positive, forward-looking, results-oriented approach as opposed to you're sick, you have a problem, <laughs> you know, I need to fix you, kind of the, the, as opposed to the medical model, frankly. This is a model of wellness and growth and forward momentum that really is invigorating. Now, you mentioned a minute ago just your the book that was released last month, Everyday Resilience. Congratulations. Thank you. And we'll have a link to it in the show notes here so people can track that down. I guess they can find it on Amazon and wherever you like to buy books. Yes. And I offer a free chapter. I'll give you the link on that. They can download a free chapter and you know get a taste of the book. Super. Well, we'll include the link to, uh, to the free chapter in the show notes here. I want to ask you as we wrap up here, is there a favorite story or account from your book that just exemplifies the journey to resilience? Yeah, I give a lot of case vignettes of physicians and students and people, you know, just walking through their life, business people. But one that comes to mind is I I talk about a surgeon, and I won't give any name, but a surgeon who came to coaching because of anger management and angry outbursts, particularly in the OR. And one day in a particularly challenging case, there was a nurse who was struggling to find the instrument that this surgeon needed, and the surgeon lost it and started screaming, how dare you come into my OR and not know how to do this? Well, the nurse, who had always wanted a career in the OR and was pretty early in their career, started crying and actually ran out of the room. So this surgeon was sent for coaching. And you might hear this story and think, oh, he was just the stereotypical kind of angry blank, blank, blank. But he wasn't. He was actually a really impressive, respectful, and kind individual who had never learned how to work with his anger and frustration. He'd never learned anything. In fact, in his training, it was all about manning up and being tough, right? And always being the captain of the team. Nothing about managing emotions, which is not that hard to learn. So he came to coaching and he was very receptive. He was really interested. He wasn't happy about his behavior, but he didn't know how to do anything different. And he didn't know how to not go from zero to 90, which is what happened that day that I'm telling you about in the OR. He was so receptive. So we worked with, you know, what were his values? How could he really link to his values, which had to do with kindness and respect? How could he get to know his own emotional temperature and taking his own emotional temperature? What were his early warning signs? He began to realize there was like a, almost a constriction in his chest before he exploded. So just like we treat early warning signs with a stroke, we intervene once he identified his early warning signs, then I could work with him to intervene, to take some slow, deep breaths, to, to regulate his emotional temperature and cool off, so to speak. And then we could work on what would be a professional response in that situation that would be respectful. He ended the coaching engagement really so appreciative because not only was his professional life improved, not only did he have the same sense of mastery that he had as a surgeon, 
but actually his personal relationships improved as well, his relationship with his teenage son in particular. Those are skills we can learn. There's hope for folks that are listening and thinking, hmm, maybe I know someone who should talk to Dr. <laughs> Gazelle. Uh, so, you know, I have a friend who, who needs a, yeah. or someone who recognizes them themselves, a picture of the story you just shared. How long does the process typically take? What do you see? Is this years of consultations and meetings? What should someone expect? I think orienting around six months is realistic. You know, on the one hand, people hear six months and they think, well, I want to change tomorrow. <laughs> but six months, on the other hand, goes by very quickly and change takes time. And we're talking about deep-seated patterns and ways that we've learned, like the surgeon that I'm talking about. He had learned to be a boy. That's what was fostered in his training. So there's some relearning here. But the good news is that Many people in healthcare and physicians, dentists in particular, they love to learn, but they don't typically have that opportunity to turn the lens of learning on themselves. So this is a way to invest in yourself, invest in your future, and invest in your ability to thrive, no matter what the difficulties are that you face. Yeah, excellent. Well, Gail, how can folks track you down? How can they find you online? The easiest way is my website, www.gailgazelle.com. I love to hear from people. And my email is info at gailgazelle.com. Maybe we can include that in the notes. But I learn every time I connect with somebody, whether you know my approach is the right approach for them or not. But I, I really enjoy hearing from people. Excellent. Yeah, we'll definitely put the link to your website in there, the link to the free chapter of your book so people can learn more, connect with you as they'll find it helpful. And I, for one, am very grateful for your time today and so glad we had you on the show. Oh, thank you, Shane. This has been a total pleasure. And thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast. We've got more great episodes queued up coming out every other Monday. So don't forget to subscribe. That way you'll know when the latest episode is released. You can find us on, of course, iTunes and Google Play. We're on a number of social media channels too. And as always, if you have suggestions for a colleague, or a friend with a story that is worth sharing, would you please email me directly, shane at whitecoatwell.com. Thanks so much. We'll see you back here next time. This episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast is over, but you're not alone on your journey. Spa Dameron Tenney has been helping physicians and dentists prosper through financial planning for over 60 years. To connect with us, visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Join us on the next episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast.